Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Beat Your Addiction with John Giordano. I'm Scott Jones. We want to thank everybody for joining us and remind you that if you like the content and if you like what we're doing, certainly subscribe to our YouTube channel and, of course, hit the bell so that you can get notifications whenever we have new shows. But uh, share with your friends and certainly reach out to us. You can reach John at johnjgiordano.com. That's J as in the initial J, johnjgiordano.com. You can reach John through there and get all of his information and uh, let us know what you think and, and what topics you would like us to cover when it comes to addiction and recovery. But with that, John, how are you? Today, I'm doing okay. I have a little back problem, but that's called part of life. You know, when you get older, you're like an old car. You know, your fingers <laughs> fall off, you know, the bumper gets problems. You know. but, well, let's you test know. this. John, look behind you quick. I can't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's get right to it because we got this great guest. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I, I know uh, Dr. Foster from, you know, we work together in other areas and other places. I didn't know she was going to be the guest today. So this is really exciting. Um, but this is Dr. KJ Foster. Um, she is the founder and the CEO of Fostering Resilience. And she'll tell you more about that. She's also the family program director over at the Beachcomber Rehab up in Boynton. And author of three books, and I'm sure she probably does a thousand other things because I've never seen her not moving. So it's hard, always to, hit got moving, something. It's hard to hit a moving target. That's you know? right. That's right. So, KJ, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear all about what you do because what you do is so important. It's paramount, you know, dealing with the families, not just the addict. Right. One thing that I just want to clarify is that I'm at the beachcomber that's in Delray because the one in Boynton is in, there's two IOPs and there's a residential. So I just don't want to confuse anybody. I'm so the place I go is in Delray? It's in Delray, yeah. Oh, I thought I was in Boynton all that time. <laughs> well, it's on the border. It's, it's on the border. It's like right a- on the border of Boynton yeah. and, and the IOP is right around the corner in Boynton and, and that's a separate facility. I don't work there. So I just want to just want to make sure. Hey, it's the one closest to the water. That's all we yeah, got to say. All right. We'll go with that. It's the one by the beach. <laughs> so tell us what you do. Uh, what I do at Beachcomber? Everywhere. Oh, everywhere. Okay. Well, let's start with um, Fostering Resilience. So Fostering Resilience is a company that um, I created that's an online platform. And it basically stemmed from it started with my YouTube channel, like a desire to get free information out to family members and individuals who are recovering. Because I know for me as someone who has recovered from an addiction and as the family member having a son who has recovered from addiction, how important it is to have something to to read to watch to do you know when you're in the midst of that struggle and not knowing what to do and not knowing where to turn or who to talk to and i didn't have that i really struggled with that i i was participating in 12-step support groups um for sure and that really helped in both a you know both alcoholics anonymous and and al-anon at the time and and yet at like two o'clock in the morning when your mind's racing or you're worried about your loved one and where they are and what they're doing, having resources, the internet is wonderful, especially, you know, in the environment of COVID, it's really been a lifesaver for people to be able to jump on the computer and attend a meeting or watch a video or get some sort of information. 
So it started with that and then it expanded into, I now do live workshops for individuals and family members, family recovery, mindfulness meditation workshops, in addition to all of the free resources that I provide on my YouTube, which is focused on education, meditation, and support groups. So I do a lot of guided meditations, meditation music, because I think that um, is really helpful for people who are struggling with post-acute withdrawal sy you know, syndrome, and also the family members that are under a tremendous amount of stress. So that's what I provide uh, through Fostering Resilience. And then um, I work as the family program director at the Beachcomber, working with the families. I've been associated with the Beachcomber my entire career, basically, in the field. I change careers as a result of my recovery at about two years sober. I decided that I wanted to give back in a more significant way. I really wanted to dedicate my life to helping other family members, helping other individuals. So I went back to school. And the very first job that I was given was by Joe Bryan at the Beachcomber Residential. I'll always be forever grateful to Joe for giving me that first opportunity. My husband was working there at the time. I met my husband, Tony, in sobriety, and um, he got sober at the Beachcomber over 18 years ago and now is the program director there because he also changed careers as a result of his recovery. And Joe gave me my first job and I became an intern there. And right away, Joe tapped me to be working with the families because of my experience with my son and having experienced recovery from both sides, so to speak. Although I don't like to put it that way because then it like the implication is that the sides are like, they're against each other, but it's like both perspective, perspectives. I've experienced it. And um, I've been there virtually ever since. Uh, Tony and I left for a period of about two years. And then Joe um, came to us and asked us to, to come back. And uh, that's evolved. We both were working the family program at the time. And now he has since become responsible for the entire facility. And now I am the one who focuses on the family program and working with the family members. And then we have a private practice, which is the Center for Sobriety, Spirituality, and Healing in Boca Raton, Florida. Yeah, so your husband's great. Tony's really a good guy. He really knows what he's talking yeah. about. So do you. It's, it's wonderful to meet like-minded people that really want to, you know, give out. And I know when I was, let's see, was it now? Wow, it's almost 30, 30, over 36 years ago when I got to recovery. And then a year later, I said, I want to give back. And most, most, I think most recovering addicts, that's what we want to do. We want to, want to show people that, you know, this really works. Because when I got into treatment, they did an intervention on me. So as far as I was concerned, I didn't have a problem. They had a problem. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's the normal thing that goes on. And um, I find therapists that, like yourself and myself, that have children that are in recovery, as well as being in a recovering addict ourselves, is really... Uh, I think you you reach out more to the, the people will get a better grasp of what's going on since they can relate to us because we can relate to them. We're not just coming from a book. Right. You know, and yeah. that makes a big difference. And, you know, I always encourage people if they could find a therapist, that doesn't mean other therapists, they can't help you. I'm not saying that, but mm -hmm. I think it's more 
Um, but it's got, I mean, it's like, you know, better connections you get with yeah. people that have been through it, you know? Right, right. Well, empathy is a really powerful component for recovery. Right. So being able to not just, I, I think that therapists and family members can identify with the feelings, right? So they can, if they really, you know, drill it down and they, and they try to focus on the feelings, they can, they can definitely uh, feel empathy. But I think a lot of people struggle with that. I think that sometimes therapists then come in with their own bias about addiction. They, they have information that they learned, you know, we're still in, even though we've come a long way with our understanding about addiction, I still think we're working on getting that information out to the masses and shifting that those um, negative attitudes and those biases and that um, misinformation and misunderstanding uh, about addiction. So we're still really, you know, there's still a lot of uh, judgment and, um, you know, those things that contribute to addiction that are out there. Yet, um, I think, that, and this is why my my recovery support groups, my daily support groups, and my family program is based in compassion. It focuses specifically on self compassion because even though family members, other therapists, loved ones can't necessarily empathize because they get stuck in that I just don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. I don't get my loved one. I don't get why they're doing what they're doing. Right. So they may not get it but they can learn to be compassionate towards their loved one rather than angry, condemning, you know, um, uh, judgmental, all of those things that just serve to make it worse rather than better. Well, once so you get, what, once you ahead. get through the blame game, right. You know, and when they're blaming each other and, you know, like I tell people, you know, um, like my son was robbing a house. He got caught. And they put him in jail. And he called me up. He says, Dad, Dad, please, please help me. I says, no, I'll see you in court. And we winded up going to court. And the judge knew me because I was bringing clients back and forth into, you know, out of the system there. And he says, John, I'll reprimand him to your custody. I said, please, Your Honor, may I speak? I says, first of all, he's, he's an addict. He needs to be in treatment. And I appreciate it if you put him on house arrest until I can get him into treatment. He says, you got it. Boy, was my son angry. Sure. But now he's uh, 18 years in recovery. Yeah. Uh, he's doing great. And uh, he has integrity, has values. Uh, you know, he has empathy for people. He understands the dynamics of addiction and, and just people's characteristics. Right, you right. Know. And and you did, you know, what a lot of people are not willing to do. That's you right. allowed him to experience the consequences of his own behavior and accept responsibility for that. And as you know, a lot of family members won't do that. They refuse to, they, um, they're afraid of the repercussions or they right. don't want it to somehow impact them. And I can identify with that because for me as the family member, this is, this is what I did. I, I made it all about me. You know, it was, look at what you're doing to me. Oh my right. gosh, how could you be doing this to me? Don't you understand me, 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 I, 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 your behavior, your addiction, you're hurting me. You're, why are you doing this to me? You know? And my son was not, and that's what Al-Anon taught me. Al-Anon taught me what I didn't know, I didn't know. There was so much I didn't know, I didn't know. 
And I learned how to change my own behavior because my own behavior was contributing to making it harder and worse for him. And I was able to get that perspective of, and, and you would think as someone who experienced addiction myself that I would know, but we were so close together in our experience of addiction. I got sober first and then he got worse. And it wasn't until I was nine months sober, even that I was willing to go to Al-Anon. You know, I was one of those that's typical. That's like, I'm too busy. I can't, you know, it's too overwhelming. I don't have time. And it wasn't until I was in enough pain, like most of us, right? Until I was in enough pain that I was willing to take that step, go to the meeting and it really changed my life to get that different perspective and understand that what my son was experiencing had really, I mean, I don't want to say nothing to do with me because I was contributing in a lot of ways. So, you know, Al-Anon teaches you, you can't control it, you can't cure it, and you didn't cause it. And although I didn't, it, I wasn't the sole reason, you know, I contributed to it, you know, I played a part and I need to, I needed to look at that part and the things that I could change. And, and basically the bottom line is getting, understanding that his addiction was real, like he's suffering people. If people could just understand that one piece of information, that one truth, because that's the truth is that your loved one doesn't want to be addicted. They, they are not enjoying, <laughs> you know, when you become addicted, you're not enjoying the experience. You're not enjoying what you're doing. You're, you are suffering. So to be able to see that your loved one is suffering and they're not doing this to you or trying to make your life miserable or, you know, that, that it's some sort of major character defect because you can become addicted. Anybody could become addicted. You know, I mean, I think the opioid epidemic has taught people at least that, that anyone mm -hmm. can. Absolutely. Yeah. I tell parents, I say, you know, certain parents that are enablers, I said, you're also addicts. And you look at me. No, I don't use drugs. I, no, you're addicted to him or her. Right. I said, that's what the story is. Look what's going on here. You know, you got to look at yourself. You can blame him all you want. But, you know, you need to get help, too, because you're in this process with him or her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's some of the things I focus on with them because, you know, I, I understand the fear. You know, they're, they're out there running around. I had a, a mother who, I mean, this is how I tell the story all the time, that she used to go into the hood to get the heroin for her son because she was afraid he might get arrested. Not thinking of herself. Right. And then she would bring it home. And, and what, he, what she said to him that, I'll bring it home and you do it in front of me. I don't want to see you're outside somewhere where I can't help you. Well, the end of the story was unfortunate. Uh, he went into his bedroom, locked the door, shot up and OD'd. And he died. And yeah. the mother, I mean, I, I told her and, you know, oh, it's my fault. I said, no. You were addicted to him. Right. Okay. Right. You have to understand something that this is what happens. Your uh, fears. I know I was scared to death when my son was running around. I know he's like 15 years old. I'm saying, oh, my God. You know, I, I'm waiting for the phone call. The phone call that he's in the hospital, he's dead. Then I get the one that he's in jail. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. really, really tough. The families 
and the significant others have to go to treatment, get right. help. Could, could, is, it, is it possible to identify this as, as it's like a family trauma? <clears throat> um, oh, sure. Oh, yeah. And, and that, that, right. that addiction, it, it traumatizes the entire family. And, Absolutely. and depending on where you're standing in that, in that family and who you are, you react differently to that. But be it known that everybody is traumatized by this and everybody needs help. Is that right. a good way to put it, KJ? Absolutely. I know family members who literally experience PTSD symptoms from the experience of their Absolutely. loved one yeah. being addicted. Because for example, I, I have clients where the, the husband talks about when he gets a certain text that says a certain thing, you know, that he remembers from when his wife was using, or she said, like it triggers PTSD. In right. Him. And so, yeah, it absolutely is a trauma, can be a trauma to the entire family. And, and another thing too, that I share with the family members and the individuals in treatment, every single time I present to the families is the understanding that when you are in active addiction, you are virtually in an abusive relationship with yourself, right? Mm. You are actively hurting yourself. You're poisoning yourself. You're slowly killing yourself, basically. And when you're in that early recovery process, you're still in that abusive relationship with self. And sometimes the family members, due to their fear, their guilt, and their own behavior, they can also start to become, a, you know, abusive to themselves in different ways, right? Whether that's, whether that's um, developing their own addiction, you know, taking medication, overeating, undereating, like they can develop all kinds of psychological problems and symptoms because they're so caught up in their loved one, you know, in managing and trying to manage and control their loved one's addiction. Well, you know, what, what I found out in my practices and, and when I had um, my treatment center that the family member sometimes is sicker than the client. Right. You know, and yeah. there's a lot of uh, substance abuse in the families. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh, I, I drink alcohol, but you're doing heroin, you know, and, and they, 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 they right. play the blame game with each other, you know. Uh, I don't understand why I can just stop alcohol. You know, that's another delusion because they don't. They why stop for a week. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, you know. And, you know, that's why... I'm so glad that you're on here talking about uh, the families because those are the ones that everybody doesn't really look at too much. They always look right. at the addict because he's the shiny object. Right. You know, and the work yeah. that you're doing is, is very necessary uh, because that's, that's a missing piece. Families are the missing piece. And um, most clients... You know, we always talk about the client. Clients don't only abuse drugs and alcohol. They abuse people, places, and things. Right. They abuse everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that affects everyone around them. And and the family members, you know, just like um, with um, dementia or uh, Alzheimer's, the caretakers get sick. They wind up dying trying to take right. care of their loved one. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what winds up happening, too, with families. They blame, and they go into severe depression and anxiety, and they're, they're black, like you said. They blame themselves. Mm -hmm. Not their fault. Right. Absolutely. I think that so much of what needs to happen with family members, what needs to be provided to family members, a key component is education. 
You know, like I shared with you, I did, I, I honestly, you know, even though I'm a therapist and um, family program, all these different, you know, hats and roles, so to speak, I primarily consider myself to be an educator. Like that's what I do. I educate people. I help them to gain the knowledge and the information that they need to gain awarenesses because no change can happen until you have an awareness that something needs to change, that you play a part, that you need to do something differently, that that with the way that the chemicals affect your loved one's brain or your own brain for that matter. So many people come to treatment, whether it's the individual or the family member, and they think, okay, I spent 28 days in treatment or I went to detox for seven days, right? And I'm good. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. And that is so far from the truth in terms of the length of time that it takes to fully recover and what happens to the brain and the impact to the brain and the fact that it takes on average a year and a half before you're going to be fully rehabilitated from the impact of the substance abuse to your brain, sometimes longer, never generally less than a year. Like I would say, you know, it depends upon, of course, length of time that you use, you know, quantity that you used, health, underlying health issues, your age, all kinds of factors. Right. Nobody, I think, you know, gets by without like a, year, a solid year of, you know, recovery and participating in support groups and doing some work on gaining their their own awarenesses and clearing up the what's happened, the distorted thinking that happens as a result of the addiction. So just, you know, pieces, bits of information like that can totally change somebody's perspective, somebody's approach to dealing with the addiction. So I think the education piece is primary. And, and it's just one of the first things that really needs to happen. Some family members, unfortunately, have the attitude of not my problem. Don't, you know, I don't need to do anything. I know, I know it all already. And, and I'll tell you the, the, probably the most difficult person and, and, and frustrating to, um, to try to reach sometimes is the person who has been in recovery themselves for years, right? And they have a loved one that comes into treatment and they say, KJ, I've been in recovery for years. I don't need to attend the family program. I, I got all, I know all this information. Right. I got it. And what they don't understand is they have information relative to their own process of recovery, but there's information that they don't know about the role that they play as the family member, which is different from their own recovery process requires different information, different education, different ways in which you're interacting with your loved one that you may not know is contributing to potential relapse. So that, you know, being open-minded and understanding anybody, I think, whether it's, you know, myself included, I don't know everything. Thank God. Like there's so much more to learn and to know and to be able to grow. Um, so I wish everybody would just, you know, have an open mind and be willing to participate in their own recovery. You know, I, I know I don't know. That's one of my things yeah. I always say. Mm -hmm. No, and then sometimes I get family members that say, well, I don't understand why he can't just stop. 
Right. Okay. So I, I, I do a little thing with them. I said, let me ask you a question, and especially the ones I see smoking cigarettes. Yeah. I said, tell you what, I got an idea. You want to get an understanding why you can't stop? Quit smoking for two weeks. They go, oh, well, why do I have to do that? Well, you do realize that smoking does cause cancer, right? So right. I says, you know, and you're smoking, and you're telling me that you can't understand why he can't quit. Oh, I said, and make it even simpler. Do you drink coffee every day? Don't have coffee for a month. Well, I I like coffee. I mean, it does this to me. Well, times that by 100, and that's what addicts go through. Right. So I I think, go go ahead, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I think that for me, uh, diabetes is a really great comparison. Um, Not when it comes to the behavior, of course, because, you know, that's a whole other element that comes in as a result of the craving process. But when you think about a diabetic, you know, people can be born predisposed to becoming diabetic. They can become diabetic because of choices they made throughout their lives and the things they choose to eat. You know, I think there's a lot of similarity in terms of the different ways in which it can manifest. But, you know, try asking somebody to stop eating sugar and, and to have somebody have to change their entire lifestyle. Like that's, you know, it's not just the craving. It's not just the desire to put the substance in your body. It's the fact, at least for me, because I was much more, I was more psychologically addicted. I never became physically addicted to the substance, but psychological addiction is, you know, can be just as powerful. And so I was much more of like a binge drinker type of drinker. But so it wasn't hard for me to stop, but the staying stop, the having to change my entire lifestyle of who I hung out with, what I did, that's, there's a tremendous grieving process that comes with that. And it's a really difficult thing to do. So trying to help family members understand that this, your loved one has to change their entire lifestyle. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not just, oh, just don't pick up the drink. Oh, just don't take the drug. There's so much more right. to it than that. Your social environment, everything that goes on with that. And there's also genetics. And I work right. with Dr. Blum, the geneticist who found the addiction gene. And, uh, and Ken, and it's really, just because you have the gene doesn't mean that you are, you are a life sentence, sentence to become an addict because there's okay. such a thing as epigenetics. And, you know, social environment could change the gene expression. But that's also right. another component that people don't get an understanding about. And, right. you know, and we have certain uh, uh, drivers that we drive towards things, especially uh, alcoholics and opiate addicts. They love sugar. They love carbs. Mm-hmm. And they just like binge and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and what that does, that throws your whole system off. And then most addicts, with people don't even, even people in recovery, they die of diabetes, Sugar, you know, all the diabetes, uh, they die of that. They die of strokes. They get heart attacks. Uh, I mean, they don't take care of themselves. So aftercare is paramount. You know, you have to teach people how to take care of themselves, not just psychologically, because everything affects everything. Right. And, you know, so I what I usually do is when I when I teach my therapist, I say to them, look, you have to look at the whole person, their lifestyle, what they do, what's contributing factors to their behaviors and their addiction, because right. you can't just look at one thing because you're going to miss nine other things. Right. And, and that's what I, I do my best to teach people. Say, look, look at the diet, look at uh, what they, what they drink, you know, what they eat, 
you know, look at their behaviors, where they hang out. If you want to know what somebody's about, look at who they're hanging out with. Right. You know, it's real simple stuff. Yeah. And that and that component is that component is huge in terms of whether it's aftercare or whether it's just, you know, because I I didn't go. I was somebody that didn't go to treatment. I went right into participating in a 12 step program and and my son didn't go to treatment either. He went to participating in a 12 step program. But yet, the, you know, if if I didn't have that, if I didn't have that support group, so that's something else that I think is a key component. I think education is a key component. I think having a support group is a key component because there are people that, there are people, first of all, who never would have become addicted otherwise had it not been from a trauma that they experienced in their life, right? My son went through a very traumatic experience um, as the result of my divorce from my ex-husband, it was hugely traumatic for him. And so it was the, you know, the, the kind of like blowing up of our entire family that changed that rocked his world. And, and, and I think perhaps he may not have become addicted had it not been for that base. I mean, maybe he would have, but regardless, one of the things that was really, really hard for him talking about lifestyle friends, He's someone who had the same friend group from the time he was in pre-K, right? Since he was four years old, he had his four or five buddies that he was really tight with, that he hung out with. And when he struggled, he was the only one of his friends group that took his drinking and drugging to the level that he did. All of his other friends were able to go to school. They were able to hold down jobs. They were able to function. He couldn't, there was no going to school. There was no working. It was job after job after job. And one of his biggest struggles and why I'm bringing this up is because he kept trying to go back to his friend group. He relapsed over and, you know, he tried and relapsed over and over again because he couldn't understand why he couldn't just go and try and hang out with his friends and not drink and drug, just didn't work. So it wasn't really until he, found someone in recovery in the rooms that introduced him to a whole group of young people and musicians because my son's always been a musician he's always been in theater and um creative and and so he found this friend group this group of musicians and was able to stay sober for six and six or seven years initially because of the support group he found. He found people that were like him, young people. And that's, that's huge. If you don't have that, it can be very, very difficult to be able to maintain your sobriety. Well, because addicts go through loneliness, they go through boredom. They, you know, it, it's just like anything else. You, you have to, if you're in a certain lifestyle, you can't hang out with people that are in an opposite lifestyle. It right. just doesn't work. You know, I had the same problem with me with my friends I had for many, many years. I, I never forget, it was three months clean, and one of my friends owned a nightclub, and he says, well, I'm just going to go there. You know, I'm not going to drink. I don't, you know, I'm not going to do any right. coke. I'm not going to do anything. Right. I'm sitting down at the table with them, and they keep sneaking back and forth to the bathroom, coming back with white powder on their nose. And I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? I was so uncomfortable, and so were they. So I, I had to separate myself and then immerse myself in the program. But most parents don't understand is they think the 28 days and everything is done. No, 
aftercare is paramount. And like you even said, it takes a year, year and a half for the brain to really start really functioning properly. And just people don't get that part. You know, I, I did a, a, a show on how treatments 70 years behind the times. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 28-day model, I don't know if you know the story, was founded by two kids that were two students. That one wanted to be a psychiatrist, one wanted to be a psychologist. They had no experience. And they came up with this 28-day model. Hazelton took it over and then ran with it. Now, 28 days is almost like it's like a joke because right. it's really it's not enough bucket. time, yeah. you know, I mean, at all. I mean, first of all, they come out of detox. They're still, their brain is still in the fog. So for the yeah. first couple of weeks, they're like, they don't even know where they are, mm-hmm. okay? And then maybe they bond with a, with, a, yeah. with a therapist and then they have to leave. Right. So, and, and you know, to me, it should be anywhere from 60 to 90 days, depending on the severity of the illness. And that model works, a 90-day model, because that's what the physician's referral network do. Right. Five yeah. years aftercare and 90 days in treatment. Right. Well, let me just touch on while you're talking about it, because this is, this is also an important point for family members, is that it's so your loved one goes to treatment for 28 days, right? And, and we, we, right, whether it's me, whoever is working at the treatment center, we, you know, we provide that person with the education, we provide them with the tools, we provide them with the resources, we provide them with the aftercare plan, right? So we give them everything that they need to be successful. But if they enter back into a an environment, a family where nobody else in that family or in that environment has changed, right? their likelihood to relapse is significantly high. high right? It's funny It's funny that you brought that up because I was just going to put that question to the both of you is what, what is your experiences with people who go back to families where there is no significant change in the family? I mean, that's got to reduce their chances well, I, I drastically. Well, I suggest my clients, and I'm sure you do too, I suggest that they go to a a sober living house or three quarter right. way house, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, to give themselves time and right. the family members, I encourage them to go to treat and go, they go to their own Al-Anon or Naranon or right. some form and go to and, and continue going to therapy exactly. because without that connection, they go back into the same house. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work. Right. And I make it real clear to them. Look, just because they went to treatment, don't think now they come out and everything is great. Because now they got to do the real work. They have to learn how to live life on life's terms. And that's what addicts have a hard time with. You know, well, they can maybe yeah. quit, but they don't know how to deal with life. But also, it's it's also, you know, from a neuropsychological perspective, the based upon the neuropathways and the neurotransmitters in the brain. That's right. It, it's, you know they haven't had enough time for new neural pathways to be carved in their brain. So they have the old strong neural pathway, right? The old, like I've heard it described as like a field of grass, right? Where if you're trying to get to the beach, that's on the other side of the field and you, and you carve out that path. Of course, whenever you go to go to the beach, you're going to go boom, like right to that path and get to the beach super fast. But to carve out a new pathway takes time. It takes, eight weeks, at least eight weeks to carve a new neural pathway into your brain. 
That's and right. for the old neural pathway to start to get grown over, right? So if you put somebody back into an environment and there's not a neuro, the, the neural path, the new neural pathway isn't strong enough yet, they're automatically just going to go right back to that old neural pathway again. And it's too powerful. It's too strong for them to be able to overcome. They could be, and this is another important, important thing too, is like, you know, that person could be committed to their sobriety 100%. They could want it. They could be motivated. They could have every, you know, positive uh, feeling and, and be committed. They're still, if they go back into that environment, the brain chemistry, the neuropathways are going to be too strong. That's why for you, John, when you went back into that environment, right? And for me, that this happened to me over and over again. I had an ex-boyfriend who drank and I would say to myself, I'm committed to my sobriety. I'm not going to drink, but I, I'm in his presence for 20 right. minutes and he's ordering a drink and that neuro, you it's know, triggering. It's triggering all those pathways. happens in my brain. Yeah. It's so powerful and so strong that I'm going, oh, oh, order me one of those. And he's going, but I thought you weren't drinking. Oh, no, no, I'm okay. I'll be fine. Go ahead. Order me that drink. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, you know, that people don't understand that. There, there, there's the brain has plasticity. I can never say that word. Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you have to create no, new neuropathways. Mm-hmm. And that's by going to self-help groups. Whether you, I don't care if you want to go to church, go to church. But, I, you know, I suggest people try everything they can. You know, to make, you know, and stay on the recovery path, because if you don't and you go back into a family, a lot of families, a lot of times they say, well, you went through treatment. You don't have to go to those meetings anymore. Right. right. You know, and and that's very common. You hear all the time Uh, or relationships. A husband goes to treatment and the wife goes, now you don't have to go to those meetings or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And if they're not educated, what they do is, is that they actually trigger people to relapse. Right. Absolutely. They contribute. That's, I remember when, you know, uh, like you described about your son, when I went to one of my first Al-Anon meetings and a a gentleman came up to me after the Al-Anon meeting and he, he told me about my enabling, you know, he said, you do know like what you're doing by allowing your son to continue to just live at home and use and do whatever he wants. And the way that you're helping him. And, And I said to him, I said, but you don't understand. I can't, kick him out. I love him so much. And he right. said to me, KJ, you're going to love him to death. That's and my, I was, I, that's my I line. Was, <laughs> I was so pissed when he said that to me. I was like, <laughs> that's the exact what? line I use. That's the exact so line angry. I use. But he was absolutely right. If I didn't change my behavior, then I very literally could have loved him to death because of my own behavior. One one thing that I do want to just uh, introduce before we run out of time is um, I'd like to talk about, because I think this is a really important component and it and it's really the basis for the first book I wrote, which is The Warrior's Guide to Successful Sobriety. And it's about being able to go beyond abstinence, right? Because I know that that we've met, we've all met that person who has 20, 30 years and they're angry and they're miserable 
and they're unhappy and you're like, wow, this is sobriety. You know, this is what this person's life is like after 20, 30 years in sobriety. And what that has to do with is spirituality. And my husband's husband's dissertation was um, a study on what the primary factors are that contribute to successful sobriety. And he interviewed um, hundreds of of people for this study. And what he determined, and it was, um, and I know I'm probably not going to, because I'm not as familiar with his study as I am with mine, obviously. But he, um, it was like 10 plus years of sobriety, I think it was based on maybe it was 20, but it was people who had significant lengths of time. And he asked them, what is what would you say is the number one contributing factor to your successful sobriety? And they said spirituality. Spirituality. That's the the foundation of recovery. The number one contributor. But because people equate it with religion, it gets very, you know, it gets very uh, uh, muddied in terms of. I know when I first went to treatment, when I first went to treatment, I went to the meetings. I said, look, I don't want to get into a new religion. I'm a Catholic. And I don't even want, I'm a recovering Catholic, by the way, you know. (laughs) And I used to curse God and I used to do all that. And here I am today, I'm a chaplain for the North Miami Police Department. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I did a whole 360. I mean, it's like 180 or whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, what people don't understand, you have to find a God of your understanding. My beginning was good orderly direction, G-O-D. Mm-hmm. And one of the old timers came up to me. And what I, what I tell people all the time is when I wrote my other book, How to Beat Your Addictions and Live a Quality Life, I interviewed about 200 addicts, alcoholics, people that had eating disorders. I wanted to know what they did. And I put that and what they didn't do. And I put that in a book. And then I interviewed about 100, 150 people that were chronic relapsers. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what they did and what they didn't do. And I put that into the book. And then I put my own experiences into the book. Because if you want to be a winner, you, you have to find out how winners become winners. Right. You know, and, and that's just the bottom. It's like in anything. I don't care what you talk about, right. you know. So the bottom line for a lot of people, they don't understand. They think they go to treatment and the job is over. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. That's where you get your information. That's your education. I still go to therapy occasionally when I come up with a wall about something. Sure. I still you know, do my meetings. I have my sponsor. I do everything I've been doing for the last, I've been doing it for 36 years. You know, and I just tell people, hey, man. You know, I'm still doing I'm a kid from the streets. Okay. I didn't believe in any of this stuff. Right. Well, all I could tell you is this. That's what I keep doing. And mm-hmm. my life is And it wonderful. works for you. Yeah. Sure. I'm going to throw out something very controversial though. Okay. You ready? All right. You, you can get and stay sober and be happy and live a very uh, successful and fulfilling life. And you can be an atheist. You don't have to believe in God. Absolutely. Recover. You know, you can you believe have- in energy or you can believe in whatever you want to believe in something outside yourself. Right, But you don't even have to. I mean, that's my perspective, because right. I have learned something called behavioral kinesiology. And that's about what we think and how we feel and our attitudes and even our actions. They contribute to illness within the body and they specifically contribute to strength 
or weakness within the body. And I think that's right. that you can really identify with this, John, based upon your work. And so for me, even though I'm Christian and I believe in God, I just want to put that out there. I mean, that's my belief system, but I believe that you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to participate in religion. You don't have to believe in any of it. No, you don't. You can still recover and stay sober that it's really there's so much of it that it's about mindset. And, and once you understand the, how our negative, our negative thinking and on our negative mindset that when, when you're in active addiction, you're in what I call uh, the swamp and in, in negativity, your, your thinking is negative. You feel negative. Your behavior certainly is. And you look at negative. everything negatively. And you look at it. It's the way that you're looking at the world is completely distorted, completely negative. And family members can fall into this as well. Sometimes we grow up in a negative environment, right? If you grew up in a family where everybody's negative and everybody's critical and your mindset is going to be that way, but you're also gonna be pretty miserable. You know, you're not gonna be unhappy. You're probably gonna develop illnesses within your body that come from that negative mindset. That's right. Spirituality for, for, for me, and this is just my, my belief based upon what I've learned is really about understanding how our thinking contributes to that negative mindset and practicing the spiritual principles is all about practicing acceptance, practicing forgiveness, practicing willingness, practicing compassion. And you can practice all of those things and not believe in God. That's right. Right. I I believe in what works. I I tell people it's, you know, they they confuse, like you say, religion with spirituality. I say, look, spirituality to me, is learn to be kind instead of right. Do your best not to lie, cheat, or steal. Mm-hmm. Help someone less fortunate than you. And right. give back to the planet mm-hmm. and to the human race. And yeah. to me, that's spiritual. That, that could be your God if you want that to be your God. Well, you don't even have to be a God. It could just be the way you live mm-hmm. your life. I've, I've always gone by the, by the uh, statement that uh, religion is for people who are trying to get into heaven. and Spirituality is for people who have already been through hell. So um, <laughs> it's just uh, one way to look at it, but yeah. that's a whole nother topic that maybe we need to get into sometime, but unfortunately we run out of time here. Okay. Um, you know, Dr. Foster, uh, KJ, the stuff that you come up with is just brilliant. Um, everybody, we appreciate the work you do with the families, your, your steadfastness fastness throughout this COVID crisis, where you found a way, come hell or high water, you found a way to stay in touch and to keep that going. So, so bless you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. And one of the things that's really, I mean, there's silver line, it's just goes to show that there's silver linings in everything in every situation, because the silver lining is I'm, I'm meeting people from all over the world, you know, people that I never would have formed a relationship with never would have met had it not been for COVID. And, and another thing I just want to, you know, throw out there is just how, um, how important it is for me at least and and how much it contributes to my recovery to be able to help other people because i i would never have been able to get sober had it not been for the people who were there for me the people that i met at alanon the people that i met at aa the people that ha- and it doesn't have to be alanon or aa right it could be there's so many different groups now that are out there that are available to people it's that people were there to help me and support me. And so that's why 
it's so important for me to be there for other people. And I know for, for you as, as well, like yes, that's how it absolutely. works. Absolutely. That's why we do these podcasts. Yeah. Right. It's not that we don't make money from them. What we're doing is we're, we're, we're getting spiritual coins in the bank, if you want to call it, you know, uh, you know, I love the work you're doing. Uh, I'm glad we had this. I, I didn't get the chance to talk to you much last time I was doing group. I was doing something. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, your work is so needed and, and your and the way you look at your work. Okay. I, I love it because you're really looking at it with holism. You're not just looking at it from a, a narrow pathway. And that's, that's so important. And uh, just keep going. <laughs> I plan to. <laughs> Uh, so one, yeah. So once again, I want to thank uh, KJ Foster. What's the best website for them to check you out? Is it the Fostering Resilience website? Yeah, they can go to. Uh, there's two websites that go to the same place. So it's okay. fr fr like Fostering Resilience frprogram.com, or they can go to drkjfoster.org. So drkjfoster.org, okay. and um, and then my my YouTube channel is Fostering Resilience, and that has a just a ton of hundreds of videos um, with free resources for people to. That's wonderful. Out. Excellent. Well, again, we thank you for all the work that you do. Um, it's been a pleasure working with you in the other areas, uh, you know, you and I together, especially. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to pull this together and do another show because I think we just started to scrape on some topics about right. spirituality and stuff that I think would be worth exploring a little more in a, sure. in kind of a round table forum. So maybe right. we could do that again soon. Absolutely. But uh, Dr. Foster, thank you very much for your time. I want to thank everybody for watching uh, Beat Your Addiction. Um, Again, remind you, if you like the show, share with your friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and hit the the bell so that you can get uh, notifications when we have other shows. Uh, But for now, John. Scott. It's been a pleasure, brother. Likewise. (laughs) We'll catch you next time on Beat Your Addiction.